Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Today, what we value, week 7, God-confident outreach. I'm going to have you stand in just a moment as I read God's Word, but before we do that, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you live in a remote country, and across a huge body of water lives your mortal enemies. And you don't know why you're enemies. You've just hated them forever, and it's, it's just gone on for generations. You grew up despising them. And one day you hear that they've contracted a deadly epidemic disease. And if they don't get the cure, they will all die. And it turns out that your tribe has the cure. You've had it for, for years. You've been entrusted with it, but now you've got a quandary. Should we stay or should we go? And the debate rages and the question, will we go to our hated enemies and give them the cure? And you know you have to count the cost. It's a dangerous journey and you could die. You also know that everyone cannot go, but in order for this to happen, everybody needs to participate. They want to survive. Now, you're probably making the connections here, but I'll just admit what I know about myself. I'm not going to admit anything about you. Only God knows your heart. But I have some long-held biases and prejudices and opinions about people near and far. And I have been giving a life-giving, eternity-altering cure for my terminal sin disease. My sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. Jesus bought me with his precious blood. He saved me and gave me new life and assured me of everlasting life with him. And I have the cure. And the question is, can I go to my worst enemy and bless him with the gospel? We'll see today in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that the gospel demands it. The gospel demands it. So stand with me please to honor God and his word. And I'm going to read Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And Lord, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts today, that you would be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you are new to grace, we finished Acts a little while ago, went verse by verse through that book, and in the end of the summer, we're going to start the book of Romans, verse by verse. But now we're focusing on our values as a church, and I just want to say about those that we don't dream them up on our own, and we don't base them on worldly wisdom. They're anchored in God's word. And last week, we looked at the parable of the talents. We looked at Christ honoring service and how we must faithfully work for Christ as we watch and wait for his return. We need to fulfill our duty and redeem the time for Jesus and the gospel. We need to cling to Christ and scripture and serve his purposes till he returns. Now, what Acts 1.8 tells us is that we don't just do that in our hearts, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and with the gathered church. We are to go everywhere possible to reach everyone imaginable. 
And the question, can we go to our worst enemies and bless them with the gospel? And the answer from Acts 1.8 is the gospel demands it. Christians are sent to bear witness to gospel truth in God-confident outreach. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 said, The confidence that we have through Christ toward God is not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Now, every week during this series, we have asked three simple questions. Why do we value this? What's the barriers? And how can we grow? And we're going to follow that same pattern today. Why we value God-confident outreach. We value it because we're confident in God's work in and through us. Because we're assured by Jesus, John chapter 15, verse 16, that he has chosen us and appointed us to go and bear fruit that remains. And the idea is that spirit-empowered witnesses represent Christ everywhere they go. They're going everywhere possible to reach everyone imaginable. Now, Acts 1.8 is um, a verse that is, is foundational. It's the key verse in the book of Acts, and it breaks down very nicely into three simple segments. The first is that it's about Christians also known as spirit-empowered witnesses. Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. God's going to do this. The second thing we see in this verse is that those Christians represent Christ. That he says you will be my witnesses. God appoints us to that task. And the third thing we see is that it's everywhere. Christians represent Christ everywhere. And you see Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. God sends us out. Look with me at the first chapter of Acts, and you'll see at the very beginning, Jesus now is presenting himself alive to his disciples after the resurrection with many proofs. So Acts overlaps the, the gospel accounts just ever so slightly and really picks up where the gospels leave off. And Jesus appears over 40 days, speaking of the kingdom of God. Verse 4 tells us that he stayed with them and told them, don't leave Jerusalem. Now, why would they have left? Well, they were targets too. And Jesus is now reassuring them. Verse 5, he says, John baptized with water. You'll remember the baptism of John was one of repentance. He says, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, very soon. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit when he left, and their expectation is, is such. But then you see their expectation is a bit off kilter. They've got some wrong ideas. In verse 6, they ask the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The word restore is an end times word for God restoring everything to its rightful condition. But what they're thinking is, Jesus is going to set himself up as a political king. They're nationalistic in their thinking, and Jesus now patiently corrects them. Look at verse 7. He says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, not, It's not for you to know what only God knows. He's basically saying, Let me do my job. Let me help you do yours as well. 
You do the revealed will of God. You leave the hidden will of God to God. Now we know that Jesus will set things right. Colossians 1 talks about him reconciling all things to himself at the cross. We will see the fulfillment of that on his return. The way A.W. Tozier put it was, the day when everything will get its true price tag and real worth will come into its own. Until that day, you need to love Jesus the most. You need to live for his glory. You need to long for his return and leave the timing to God. Be working as you watch and wait. What Acts 1.8 gives us is how it's going to play out. This is what Jesus is explaining. Here's how that's going to play out. So the first thing we see is these are Christians that he's, he's, he's referring to, also known as spirit-empowered witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. God's going to do this. Power. Now, two New Testament words convey the idea of power. First is exousia. You see that in Acts 1-7. Authority. And then dunamis in verse 8. Power. And the two words are kind of related to each other in one sense. The one who promises the power, the dunamis, is the very one to whom all authority, exousia, the right and the might in heaven and on earth has been granted. Matthew 28, 18. Dunamis is a key word in the book of Acts. It's used ten times. Three times to describe miracles, the visible supernatural power of God, and seven times as the supernatural power necessary to serve God. Now there's a reason why you can trust Jesus' promise of power. Because he can be fully trusted to make good on that promise. He has full authority to make that promise. If I said to you, I'm going to give you power, you're going to take a look at me and say, your guns aren't big enough. Your muscles are not big enough. But this is power that's an inherent ability to do something. It's not physical ability. It's a power to do a task. It's to carry out some function. And what Acts 1.8 is, is saying is this, this dunamis, this power of God, is associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit upon a person that gives them supernatural power to be capable of, of accomplishing the tasks that Jesus gives them. The, the, the task that Jesus assigns to them. The power necessary for disciples to be witnesses of the good news, which, by the way, possesses inherent power, that same power. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God, dunamis, the power of God. Well, we get our word dynamite. The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So we're very clearly talking about here is the power of God. It's the creating out of nothing power of God. It's the dead, raised to life, resurrection power of God. And Jesus says you're going to get this power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Notice it's if, excuse me, notice it's when, not if. It's, it's, it's not if, it's, it's when. It was a certainty. His power was assured. All they had to do was wait for it. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. People misunderstand the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not a thing. It is not an it. It is a person, the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit, the one that Jesus asked for from the Father 
the one the Father promised to send, the one who was associated with power to be Christ's witnesses. And Jesus says you're going to get this power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Has come is in the aorist tense. It indicates the Spirit's coming is to be a definite historical event, not a continuous coming one after another. He's going to come at a given point in time. To those who were there hearing this for the first time, that would be the day of Pentecost, very soon afterwards. But since then, every believer has been baptized, identified with the Holy Spirit at the time of new birth. Baptism with the Spirit is a one-time event. And Jesus is speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, later on this summer, we're going to look at the, uh, the idea of, the, of life in the Spirit. And what does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit? And even, even what does it mean to, to uh, grieve the Spirit? But here he's speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5. He says, not many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's an immersion that's going to happen. It's a fact that's going to happen. It's not something they're going to work for. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You receive it as a gift, not a second blessing, a first blessing. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we have all, speaking of believers, we've all been baptized, literally submerged into the Holy Spirit. It's an unconditional fact. that Every believer from Pentecost onward receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence as the dominating force in your life. You're sealed by the Spirit. You are protected for eternal glory by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you. It's the power that works within you as a believer. Just 40 days prior to the events of Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to his disciples, John 14, verse 16, he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because the world is not believing. But he said, he abides with you and will be in you. John 16, verse 7, Jesus even went as far as to say to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is to your advantage that he goes away, that he, that he dies on the cross and is buried and is raised on the third day and appears and then ascends to the Father, which you see happens right here in Acts chapter 1 in a few verses later. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. And the reason why is because he says, if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it's our advantage that Jesus ascended to the Father. So the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, whom the Father and the Son promised as the one to indwell all believers and be their enablement to live the Christian life. So what you've got here, first of all, is Christians, a.k.a. spirit-empowered witnesses. And the second thing we notice here is that they represent Christ. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. God appoints us to that task. My witnesses, what does that mean? Well, you will witness about Jesus, giving testimony of his life, death, and resurrection. And you will be a witness of Jesus who belongs to him. And you're, in, in one sense, you're his feet on the ground, so to speak. 
And the apostles knew that they were witnesses. They knew it. You go through the book of Acts and you notice they keep bringing it up. Chapter 2, verse 32. Peter's preaching and he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. Chapter 3, verse 15. They put to death the prince of life, the one God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Chapter 5, verse 32, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Does it mean to obey the Holy Spirit? It means to believe in Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 39, they say, we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Chapter 10, verse 41, he appeared not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen beforehand by God. To us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And then chapter 13, verse 31, for many days he appeared to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the ones who are now his witnesses to the people. They knew they were witnesses. Christians, spirit-empowered witnesses, represent Christ. And what you also notice here in this verse is that they represent Christ everywhere. Everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, God sends us out. You might remember this, but Jesus had commanded them to avoid Samaria at one point. Now he's saying it's part of the program. It's part of the program. You go everywhere. Don't leave anybody out. Now they should have, they should have keyed into this one. God had told Israel in Isaiah 43 verse 12, you are my witnesses. When Jesus said to his apostles, you will be my witnesses, they should have been thinking Isaiah. They should have been thinking that they'd heard this already. And then Isaiah 45 verse 22 says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Witnesses to the ends of the earth. In fact, Paul quoted Isaiah 49 verse 6 over in Acts chapter 13. Look at Acts 13 47. Acts 13 47 it's, it's speaking of the preachers of the gospel who are called to be a light to the Gentiles, taking God's salvation to the end of the earth. He says this, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and he quotes Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And you understand this idea of being a witness in light of even this quotation of this verse. And even Isaiah 52, verse 10, the, na the nations will hear, the ends of the earth will will hear. And, and Zechariah 9.10, his dominion to the ends of the earth. So they're going to go to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus is telling his, his followers, you cross all regional, cultural, and geographical barriers to share the gospel of the grace of God, which has this inherent power to give spiritually, spiritual life to the spiritually dead. It's what you're going to do. You go into the remotest parts of the earth. They would recall, or they should have recalled God's words to his son in Isaiah. God the Father speaking to God the Son in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 49.6 is God the Father speaking to God the Son. It, here's how it goes. Is it too small a thing that you, God the Son, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you, Jesus, a light. 
John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So the Father gave this charge to the Son, and then now in Acts, the Son gives the charge to the disciples. Pretty cool how it works that way, right? Paul applies Isaiah 49.6 to his ministry to the Gentiles on his first missionary journey. So the scope of, of the mission is as far as you can go, as far as you can go, reaching into untold locations, reverberating out from point A, wherever you start. It's like Jesus is saying, you're going to be my concentric circles witnesses. It's going to reverberate out. And to them, it was quite staggering to hear this. Here, think about it. Here's the mission at that point. Eleven of them. One will be added. Matthias will be added. And they're going to reach Jerusalem. That's a stretch. Oh, they're going to go into Judea and Samaria. Totally outlandish. Oh, you're going to go to the whole world. Unthinkable. Now, we live in a different world today. Today, you can have a dream to reach the whole world with something and actually gain some substantial traction on that goal through the notoriety of a podcast or a blog or an Instagram account. Now, in the eyes of the apostles and their world, immediately, this was preposterous talk, utterly out of reach. Here they have no earthly power, no position, no you know, human gifting, so to speak, they're very unlikely suspects. Oh, and, and they're faithless, disobedient, cowardly, and impatient to boot. Here you have a bunch of nobodies who can't do anything trying to reach everybody to the ends of the earth. And there's 11 of them at this point. A job too big for mere mortals. God's the X factor here. Now, you think about who heard this for the first time. Those first witnesses misunderstood the mission's magnitude. Due to national pride, due to prejudice, due to missing a huge Old Testament emphasis about going to the ends of the earth, about God choosing people from all nations. Now, this was a task that Israel did not fulfill due to disobedience. Then you have Jesus, the perfect servant of the Lord who did, and he's passing the baton to his disciples. What's going on in Acts 1.8? The apostles are asking this sincere but misguided question. Will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus is like, that's for me to know and you to find out. You just get to work. Do what you're called to do. Leave the God stuff to me. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. That's it. Now, of course, there's all sorts of barriers up against that, right? For them and for us. For example, wrong priorities. We, we're, we're expert at this. Well, it's someone else's job. We pay someone to do that. You know, we hire people to do specialized tasks. Laundry, lawns, groceries, evangelism. And then we have all sorts of diversionary tactics to get us off that goal. Our minds on the wrong things. We're like Martha, bothered about what everybody's doing. Wrong priorities. Also, fear and unbelief. 
We're afraid of the boogeyman. Remember Peter at the fire, warming his hands, denying Jesus rooster crows? For many of us, somewhere a rooster is crowing. We got this risk aversion going on. We, we say, well, you know, I, I've, got to, I've got to think about my reputation here. You know, I've got relationships that I need to, you know, to foster here uh, that will get hindered if I get the gospel into them. And, and oh, oh, and by the way, God's credibility if I blow it, so I just won't even try. We're insecure in our faith. We, we have ignorance about even how to share the gospel at times. If you want to know how to share the gospel, just open up your Bible and start reading the book of Acts. Okay? Just read it. Now, the original hearers of this verse were living in a pagan world. Okay? No supporting Christian culture. Just the word of God and the spirit indwelling them and Jesus directing them and they preached the gospel by the power of God. What do you see happen? Well, in Acts you see it and you see it in the world today. You see the wrath of man against Jesus and the gospel. Opposition, the, the supernatural spread of the gospel and the growth of the church accompanied by persecution. Think about Stephen, the first martyr. We get our word martyr from the Greek word for witness. And it's come to mean someone who loses their life for the gospel. And here's Stephen, who's preaching the gospel in chapter 7, verse 58, they drive him out of the city and they stone him to death because Christ's witnesses risked their lives for the truth. You may lose your life for Christ's sake. By the way, every time I've ever said that to a group of American believers, you know what I, I think they're doing? Laughing at me inside, chuckling, going, ha, 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 we're too far away from that. There, that wouldn't happen. Jesus made it really clear, you need to lose your life in your heart. But shedding blood is optional. It might happen. You, might be, you have to be willing to. And the last barrier I'll bring up, because there's so many, but I'll just bring this one up, culture shock. Culture shock. Christ's call to be witnesses was a shock to the system of the apostles. They've been told their whole life, you have no dealings with Samaritans. So they avoid them, and they avoid all Gentiles to maintain ceremonial purity. And they're like, now we, we're going to get ourselves messed up over these people over here that we hate? They had significant geographical boundaries, cultural boundaries to overcome. Here was Samaria, geographically close, but culturally remote. You look at that day, and the gospel goes from Jerusalem as far as Rome, and Rome was the remotest place at that point from Jerusalem, but the Romans considered themselves the center of the earth. There's a tremendous geographic separation. It's, it's so weird the way we live now. You can get on a plane and get anywhere by tomorrow, or at least lose a day and get somewhere by two days from now, right? But you come back, you get the day back, so it's all good. It all works out if you come back. But we enjoy this worldwide connectiveness I think it might be harder to walk across the street than to get on a plane. How can we grow in this? I'm just going to give you two things today. There's two ways to grow in this, in this value, God-confident outreach. The first thing I want to bring up to you is that you need to understand your identity as 
a believer. A witness can only testify to what they have personally experienced. You must have personal experience of Jesus. No secondhand faith. You can't use someone else's access code. You need firsthand knowledge. Saved by grace through faith in Christ. You, you have simple, humble faith in Christ. Where you say, I've made a mess of my life. Jesus is the only one who can make it right. I don't deserve it, but I want what he offers. And so you believe in him. You put your trust in him. He will save you. This is what Paul and Silas preached, Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You believe in the Lord Jesus. You trust his finished work on the cross in shedding his blood to pay sin's penalty. And because all who believe are freed from the power and the penalty of sin. One day you will be free from its presence in heaven. It's like Peter said, you can't see him now, but you love him and you believe in him. Filled with Joy inexpressible and full of glory. You got to understand your identity as a, as a witness. You are not an independent contractor. Acts 1.8 tells you that. I love the definite nature of God's declarations. There's no maybe here. There's no wiggle room. This is the way it is and the way it will be. And, and it should be a huge comfort and assurance to us. John Owen said we have no power from God unless we live in the persuasion that we have none of our own. If you're a Christian, you've received the Holy Spirit, you are Christ's witness, and you are compelled to make disciples of all nations. The love of Christ controls you and compels you. So you meet people where they're at and you lead them to Christ. You live a life that gives credence to the gospel. You demonstrate a transformed life. You share what it means. You're on mission with Jesus. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Jesus said, I came to seek and save those who are lost. You, guess what? Guess what? As a believer, as a spirit-empowered witness, you get to be a part of that. You get in on that. Representative of Christ, responsible for taking the gospel everywhere. You've got to understand your identity. Secondly, you've got to understand that you're... you're your job is to testify to the truth. You gotta obey, you gotta engage people with souls. And, and I think there's a reason why often we won't testify to the truth. One of the most difficult truths to grasp is the eternality of hell. And the misery of it all is simply unfathomable. And it is one that must move us to the deepest reverence before God, but also the deepest of compassion towards other people, towards those who are rejecting Christ. When an unredeemed person enters hell, there will be a shock as to the magnitude of hell. It will set in on them. One of the greatest miseries of hell will be the eternality of it, the foreverness of hell. It will be shocking. There will be no end to conscious torment. And one of the heresies that is being given out to professing believers today, and many are believing it, is that God is just going to like not make hell be forever. 
That somehow he'll, they'll, just, they'll, just, he'll just wipe out hell and it, they, won't have to, they won't have to be in torment forever. But the problem is, at the very same time when you say, well, heaven's forever, you can't have it both ways. Heaven and hell are both forever. And salvation is a rescue. It is a rescue, a divine rescue from eternal damnation. And, and, and Jesus isn't like, well, oh, I'm, I'm saving people from a lack of purpose. Oh, I'm bumping them up a few notches on the comfort scale. Oh, I'm, I'm going to make them more prosperous. I'm going to make them happier. I'm going to give them more self-esteem. No, it is a serious rescue operation from eternal damnation. Jesus saves you from hell. So guess what? We better preach. We better sow seed. We better live it in our life and, and, and speak it in our voice. And, and this, is what, this is what those who heard this went out and did. They spoke with boldness. They encountered opposition because of the preaching of the word. They, commanded, they were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus, which, by the way, still happens today. People told not to mention Jesus' name in, in many pub, public settings and private settings. Well, Jesus says preach. Acts 10, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Unless you think that you're not a preacher, there are two kinds of preaching going on in the book of Acts. Go over to Acts chapter 8. I want you to see verses 4 and 5. There's private preaching and public preaching going on. Verse 4, those who were scattered due to the persecution went everywhere preaching the word. And that doesn't mean preaching in a church service. Literally, it means gossiping the word, spreading it from person to person, bringing the good news. It's the Greek word, uangelizo, announce good news. It's, it's this desire to tell people about Christ. It should be ours. But then look at verse 5. The other kind of preaching you see is in verse 5. Philip goes down to Samaria and was preaching, was proclaiming Christ. Different word. Keruso, heralding, standing in a public place, addressing a group of people. In verse 6, the crowds listen to him, and, and this is what happens. Christ's witnesses preach the gospel one-to-one -one personally and to groups publicly. That's how the gospel spreads. You testify to what you've seen and heard firsthand. It's a magnificent privilege from God. It's an all-encompassing calling. It's not a hobby. It's a lifelong vocation. I think of Acts 8, and Philip gets called by God from away from a, a, a huge, a huge uh, movement to Christ from a bunch of people in Samaria, and, and there's like this revival going on, and he gets called out to a desert road out in the middle of nowhere. And he goes, he's obedient, and he sees an Ethiopian riding in a chariot, and he happens to be reading Isaiah 53 about Jesus, and, and he preaches the gospel from that point to him. We're to be salt and light. I think of Jonah. Go back to the Old Testament. 
Jonah, they saw, he, he saw the Ninevites as undeserving of God's mercy and incapable of repentance. I'm not going to them. I think there were people cheering Jonah on when he went in a boat to Tarshish. God told Jonah to do it. He, he disobeyed, and, and Jonah paid the consequences. And, but then God miraculously rescued him and recommissioned him for what? God confident outreach. Where you love one, where you love people one soul at a time in personal witness. You love them one group at a time in public proclamation. Now I realize that some people may go through their entire life and never lead someone to Christ. Not because they aren't faithful, but because they're not wired to communicate that way. And you might feel like a failure if that's you. And the clock is still ticking. You still have time if you haven't done this yet. Well, you have a desire to lead someone to Christ, but it just somehow doesn't happen. But you may not know all the seeds, the gospel seeds you planted, and all the help you gave, and the part you played in gospel work. How God used your efforts for his glory and others' eternal good, or the way you chose to lose to live your life in powerful testimony. But then on the other hand, you might have some geographical or cultural or attitudinal barriers to overcome. Many of us do. Just the other day, my nephew Joseph was with us and he wanted to go fishing in Santiago Creek, half a mile from our house. I laughed out loud. I'm like, you can go down there, but there is no fish in that creek. There is none in, it's a, it's a, it's a gutter. <laughs> And, and by the way, I was so wrong. He's been catching, catching largemouth bass out of that creek. I told him there was no fish in. Well, sometimes you think there's no fish in the creek. It's stock full, baby. Stock full. You look at someone, you're like, hmm, there's no way they could say yes to Jesus. There's nothing there. I've been there. God loves it when we obey. Keep going even if the naysayers tell you not to fish. By the way, there's all kinds of snobs. I will tell you right now, I'm a self-professed olive oil snob. Okay, some of you know this about me. It's got to be a certain color and flavor and all that, or I feel very short-changed. But, yeah, but there are... <laughs> Amen, brother. Yeah, but, but there are evangelism snobs. Some Christians make a big deal about what kind of evangelism is better. Those are people who aren't sharing their faith. You trust the master, not your methods. And by the way, someone's method that they do works better than the one that you talk about and don't do. I was in Memphis, Tennessee once, and there was this church that had a pond out front. It was awesome. Like, where's my fishing pole? And then I saw the sign, no fishing. Like, really? You got a church with a fishing pond out front? You're not going to let me fish? This is what happens, though. People go, well, you know, you can't go share the gospel with those people. We, we know all the statistics about that. It doesn't work. Well, you don't like their methods. You don't like their, you don't like the way they talk or the way they smell or the way they live. We got to get over ourselves. We got to get over ourselves because, guess what? Nothing is more important than Jesus and the gospel of first importance, first importance, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, raised the third day according to the scriptures, appeared, ascended to the Father, and he will appear again. 
So can you go to your worst enemy and bless them with the gospel? The gospel demands it. A.J. Gordon said that before Pentecost, the disciples found it hard to do easy things. After Pentecost, they found it easy to do hard things. We've got organized outreach opportunities as a church. You've got weekly park night, monthly bike repair, monthly Mexico trips, fountain health care worship service, up and running again, and more. And many, many organic outreach ops. Many opportunities to engage other people. In your neighborhood. By the way, you want to reach your neighborhood? Be visible and available. At your work, you've got keys and passcodes to go where everybody else can't. You've got to use your creativity. Because what we see here in, in Acts 1.8 is Christians, also known as spirit-empowered witnesses, who receive power because they have the Holy Spirit, and they represent Christ everywhere. Because Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And Jesus preached peace to us so that we would have peace with him and then go and preach the gospel of peace as peacemakers in the world. You gotta understand your identity as a, as a witness for Christ. You gotta testify to the truth and then you rejoice in what God does. You rejoice in what he's done, you rejoice in what he's doing, you rejoice in what he's going to do. Because guess what? You, believers, were, were mortal enemies of God. You fought against him with all your might. You didn't want the cure. God had mercy on your soul. Jesus died in your place. He opened your blind eyes. He saved you by grace so that you might live by grace and serve by grace and reach out in love in God-confident ways. Spirit-empowered witness representing Christ everywhere, going, going everywhere possible to reach everyone imaginable. Let's pray. Lord, we... Praise you that even though we were your enemies, fighting against you, not wanting what you, what you give us as the cure. Thank you, Lord, that you turned us. You, you drew us to yourself. You, you had mercy on our souls and you opened our blind eyes. And you saved us by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Lord, by your grace, may we go to represent you everywhere. All for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.